thinking about those early days, it actually brought me such a sense of joy. And I was so grateful that I lived through it. And I was so grateful that I got to have this career. I still have this career where most of the people I know, my contemporaries, they hate their jobs. They're now retiring. They're kind of not knowing what to do. They're having bad retirements because they were like all structured, going to job, coming home, you know. And I've been so darn lucky because I literally would get up, make a cup of coffee, walk to my desk, start creating with all these people and with all my animals, you know, my family, just just home. I'm a real homebody too. And I just loved it. And and then all I ever wanted, and it's funny because people always say, do you think you're a big success? All I ever wanted was to give to readers what writers gave to me. That was it. And that I got that. That was the voice of Elda Minger, author of Untamed Heart, which is known in romance history as the first contemporary romance to feature condom use on the page. Elda was edited by Vivian Stevens. She tells the story of working with Vivian and also Carolyn Nichols, another storied romance editor, and uh, amazing amazing perspective on uh, Woody Wiss, on uh, the early days of romance, and what it was like to be a part of a company of women for which she is still really proud to be part of. This one is pretty perfect. Welcome to Fate of Mates, everyone. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romances and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. Off we go. I grew up in a house of readers, My all teachers, my mom, my dad, my grandmother. I knew how to read before I went to school. Books were always the most coveted, like Christmas was like ripping open. It wasn't socks, it wasn't underwear, it wasn't toys, <laughs> it was books. And I mean, I remember, I remember my mother's family was so funny. They were like, you let your kids read comic books. And my dad was like, I don't care what they're reading so long as they're reading, you know? Yes. And we just read and read and talked books. And and, um, my great aunt and great uncle, they would, they had a limited income. So they'd search all year for used books that we, that was our interest and tie them with twine. And I remember I had a girlfriend who said, what a horrible gift those those books kind of smell and they didn't even wrap them with paper. And I remember thinking, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. And that's cool. You know, but amazing. But I always, you know, we had tons of books in the house. I remember when we lived in Illinois, a plumber came and he looked around and he goes, you read all these books to my dad. And my dad said, nah, they're just really good insulation, you know, against the snow. But I mean, you know, I just always loved the written word. I always loved books. And I never thought about being an author because my dad wrote three books and my uncle wrote a biography of Mozart and my mother published some poetry. But I always saw my dad when he would get like rejection letters and he'd get so depressed and he'd have a couple of drinks like, ah, oh, shit, this is awful, you know. And I, I just thought I never want to be that person. And so the biggest laugh in my family was when I started writing books because it was, you know, all, a lot of us became teachers and I did do a lot of teaching of writing. But I never really thought about becoming a writer. And then romance, the way it came to me, because I read Harlequins in high school. Okay. And I I remember going to Reeves Drugstore on Main Street in Antioch, town of 1,200 people, right on the Wisconsin border, Illinois to Wisconsin. I'm in Chicago. I know where that is. (laughs) Okay. It's a chain of lakes, the big resort, you know. 
So there was a big metal spinner and there was this book there and I looked at it and I, it was something in Italy and I thought that looks good. And I took it home and I read, I think I was like 12 <laughs> and I was just like mesmerized. And of, of course it was all like his top thighs and his glowering and, you know, and I didn't know what half of what was going on, but it was just a great story. And I went back and I said to the lady, I said, are there more of these? And she said, well, there's four every month. And I said, oh boy. And she goes, I can save them for you. And she said, I'll put them in a brown paper bag. And I was like, why? And she goes, well, I'll put them in a brown paper bag. And and so (laughs) right away when you get older. (laughs) Yeah. and, and, And it was like, okay, somehow I'm not supposed to be reading these or something, you know, something's a little forbidden. So I kept them hidden in my closet, but I read Harlequins all through high school and it was, I loved them. And you know, like Violet Winspear, oh, Anne yeah. Mather, yeah. Uh, all the older names. Carol Mortimer it, was my favorite of those. Oh yeah! Presents. Oh god, she was mm. great. And and it was so funny because I remember I had a big box in my closet and I kept them hidden. And it was one of the reasons when I was in college, I when my dad said he taught at Loyola University, so he said, "Hey, it'd be cheaper for you to go to Rome for a year than for me to pay for your college because kids, you know, the professors' kids get free." And I said, Italy, sign me up. You know, I want to go to England. I want to go to Nor. All the places I'd read about in Harlequin. So that it was part of like my like my international travel. And so then, you know, my dad was really. There was my older sister, me, and my little brother. My dad was great as far as equality for women. Like we sat around the dinner table, and it was like the rose and the thorn. Best thing today, worst thing today. Mm -hmm. I always felt like I could speak up and have opinions and talk to people. And I'd go to friends' houses, and this was the Midwest in the 70s. And I remember going to a dinner where the wife and the two girls did not talk at all. Wow. And the father and the brothers talked. And and it took me a second to realize I wasn't supposed to talk. And then we all got up and cleared the table, and they sat and talked, and the father lit a cigarette. And I was like, this is like being in, on Mars, because my dad would be like, okay, what'd you kids learn today? Anything funny? What's going on? You know, Tell me what your friends are up to. So I always felt I could always speak up and not be a loudmouth, but just be articulate and have opinions. So I went away to school. I went to Kenyon College, got a degree in English Lit, and it had only been open to women for about five years, six years. And all this does tie into the condom scene. It really does. (laughs) Right. And I remember a professor who was a real bastard, and he said, women cannot write novels. Women cannot write novels. And this one woman in the front, she was like, Anne Bradstreet. And he said, poetry and a kind of an anomaly. And somebody else said, Emily Bronte. And he literally said she was insane. This woman was insane. And I'm sitting in the back row thinking, what's wrong with this guy? And I got really mad. And I screamed out, Jane Austen, like from the back of the room. <laughs> and there's this dead silence, and you could see cognitive dissonance, like his face got real red. And he was like, Because how can you say this is a crappy writer when the Prince Regent said the most perfect novel in the English language, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, ah, 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 and he just couldn't, and it was great because it was just people were like, good for you, just Jane Austen, you know? So <laughs> I, took, I took my English degree and there was like women's studies classes back then. And there were women authors, like we were a separate category. We were not writers, we sure. were women oh, writers. Nice. And so I, it was really weird because I never read romance. You know, it, like 72, Flame in the Flower came out. I was in college. So I I knew nothing of historicals. I knew Harlequins. I, I knew category. I didn't know historicals. 
So did you read Flame in the Flower? Was that? Well, not in college. I mean, I was so busy reading like all the male authors and all their point of view and everything. And not that they're bad, but it was like, let's have a little of everybody, you know? And so I, I read them in Italy. I found the Mills and Boons at the little British bookstore that was there. I came home. Now I finished school and the worst part, worst part of my life, my dad died three months before I finished college. Oh. So I was reeling and I barely, I mean, my professor was great because we had to do orals. We had to like stand up and really say we knew our stuff. And I remember standing there thinking, I'm in a flunk. I, my brain is like, I'm screwed. And he looked at me and said, Miss Minger. And I said, yes. And he said, Shakespeare. And I thought, thank you, God, because I know <laughs> Shakespeare. I mean, thank, he, he knew that I loved and knew. Yeah. So I managed to pass. So my sister and I both got a job at Crocs and Brentano's in Libertyville outside Chicago. What is that? It was a bookstore chain, a really nice bookstore chain, almost like, uh, like Barnes & Noble, like gifts and things, but mostly books. And it was right outside Chicago. In Chicago, there readers, Phil Donahue always advertised books. Oprah it was before Oprah, but I mean, talk shows would do books, and and you'd have, you'd fix the table up front with that book, and all the women the women were the great readers. They'd come in and buy the book. So, I remember about three weeks after I got there to work there, our manager Karen, who was just great, best boss I ever had, she said, "We are having a phenomenon. We need to talk after work. Fifteen minutes. You need to be prepared." So we go in back and there are all these crates marked Shauna. And she said, <laughs> Sure. We are going to be selling this book. It's going to be very different. Then, of course, this was the killer. She goes, Elvie, you're the best cashier. You're going on the front register. You will be there all day. You will signal if you need a bathroom break. You will get a full Whoa. lunch break. But we will not wow. even sticker these books. You are going to memorize the SKU. It will be taped up on the register. And you will be like, your fingers will be flying and you will be selling these books. And I was listening, but it wasn't that I was a smart ass, but I was like, yeah, yeah, how bad can it be? Okay. Wow. We get there. We're there at 7.30 in the morning. By 8 o'clock, it's like a rock concert. <gasps> Wait, was she there or was it just the book? No, no, no. This was just selling Shauna. And we had unpacked the book and Karen said, don't even shelve it. Stack it on your counter. Just stack it up. We're stacking it on the tables. And it's like we literally had clerks who their whole job was to give the book out just give the book out here's shauna here's shauna i was almost scared when they opened the door because it was like and the stampede (laughs) of women came in and they were so alive and so excited and their eyes and their energy and i was like what is this what is this now remember i'm here screaming jane austen come on women writers i have no idea what this is so about 11 o'clock before my lunch break i took a copy i knew we were going to run out and I hid it like under the counter. And on my lunch break, I went back and put it in my locker because I thought, I'm buying this. Whatever this is, I don't know what it is, but it's something. It's and something. Had she described it to you? She said it was a historical romance. And I was like, what's that? I've never heard of any of it. Because I was like in a bubble in Gambier, Ohio, tiny little college town. You know, there was barely a drugstore in Mount Vernon. And so where did you get books? You had your college bookstore and they sure didn't carry historical romance. So I go home. We make dinner. I crack open this book and oh my God, I cannot stop reading. And I'm reading and I'm reading. And I'm like, I love this woman. She's not a nice girl. She's not a perfect woman. She's not a paragon of virtue. She's not the angel of the house. She's real. She doesn't want to get married. She's going to pull a fast one over on her dad, which I was very, (laughs) that was one of my specialties. And I was like, oh my God. So I read and I probably got about half of it done. I fell asleep at four in the morning. 
dragged my ass to work, sold another whole huge day of shanas. We were shipping them in from Chicago because we'd run out. Unbelievable. I have never, I've never in my life seen a book sell like Shauna. It was unbelievable. Well, just for our listeners to give people a little bit of a frame of reference, Shauna is by Kathleen Woodowis, who wrote The Flame and the Flower. Um, it was re- it was published in 1977, which is five years after The Flame and the Flower. So at this point, um, everybody who listens to the podcast knows that The Flame and the Flower sold two million copies in the first year. So Mm-hmm. Kathleen Woodowis is a is a rock star at this point. Like she's a phenomenon. Millions and millions of women who and men who are waiting for this yeah. book to come out. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenon. And so I finished the book and I said to my friend Janet, who worked at the bookstore, I said, "Are there more like this?" And she goes, "Oh, please!" And she leads me down <laughs> to the whole big bookshelf and she goes, "Get this, this, this." So number two, I read Wolf and the Dove, loved it. Number three, Sweet Savage Love. Loved it. I mean, just I went through everything. I went through Rosemary Rogers and and Kathleen Woodowitz and Shirley Busby and Laurie McBain and oh my God, just on and on and on. And I'm like, what is this? I just fell in love. And I had a story in the back of my head. And this is really interesting because I was at the Writers Guild when Stephen Gagan talked about traffic and how he wrote the movie script. And he is from St. Louis and he said, three weeks after my father died, I started writing. And he said, I don't know why. But that was it. And I was in the front row and I just stopped writing. Like I took little notes for friends, but I was like, oh my God, three weeks after my father died, I started writing the story that was in my head. And this is the weird part. It was a historical romance. And I didn't even know the genre. I did not wow. even know the genre. So I thought that's interesting. And, and he said, I think it was my desperate attempt to control what I couldn't control. And I thought, yep, bingo, you know, nailed me. Doesn't take Freud to figure that one out. So I'm writing this historical romance. I'm reading them like crazy. I end up driving to LA because I we, we ended up after my dad died, we moved back to the West Coast because all the rest of our family was there. And so Harlequin used to have an office on Sunset Boulevard. And the woman who ran it was named Evelyn Grippo. And she would have these things where she'd set up chairs and have cookie and coffee and talk about romance. And she'd say, I'm always looking for writers. And I didn't think about writing a Harlequin then because I was writing my historical. So I finished it. And then there was a thing called the California Writers Conference. And Florence Filer, a very ancient older lady, was there, an agent. And my, my claim to fame with her was that she had gotten the manuscripts beforehand and she had read my first historical. And when I came in to meet her, I was so nervous that I hyperventilated and she had to give me a bag. And I was like breathing into the bag, like, oh. and she was like, calm down, honey, calm down. And I'm like, oh. and she goes, first of all, you can write. So that's the good news. She said, secondly, here's the bad news. The historical market is dead. Do you know what a Harlequin is? And I said, I do. I love them. And she goes, good. Tonight at the dinner, go up to Fred Kerner and tell him I told you to tell him to send you a box of Harlequins. And I said, okay. So Fred Kerner was this very flamboyant guy at Harlequin who wore a white suit. And they did those parties for women readers. This is like ancient history, but he was a nice guy. And I went up to him and I said, Florence Feiler asked me to ask me to ask you to send me a box of Harlequins. He goes, he took a business card, write down your address, honey. Okay, it'll be to you. So I told my mom and my mom was like, hmm, because my mother was like a Capricorn and a very business oriented woman. So three weeks later to the day, this big box comes crashing down on my apartment step, like a huge 46 paperback count box filled with romance and presents. And my mother was like, I'll be damned. The first one I picked up, Janet Daly, no quarter asked. 
So I'm reading and I'm going, and, and see, I came from a theater background. So I'm like, God, this is like a really intense one act play. This is harder than it looks. Oh, it's so interesting that you frame it that way. That's the, that was the way my mind worked. And I, and I began breaking it down and breaking it down. And I was taking a writing class with Marilyn Lowry, who was a great influence on me. You could not get in her Saturday morning class unless you had your 10 pages. No if, ands, or buts. So that really taught me discipline. But anyway, so I read them all and I wrote one and I sent it to London. And I remember I was so upset. I was like puking practically because I was so nervous. And I remember my brother said, why do you have to mail it? I'll mail it. And I was like, good, go do it. I can't do it. I'm too scared. So I got a little thin letter from England from Francis Whitehead that said, Dear Ms. Minger, though your story was entertaining, it is not suitable for our list. And we already have our American writer. But thank you so much for considering our American <laughs> writer, who is Janet Daly at this Janet point. Janet Daly. And so I remember thinking, not right for our list. What does that mean? We, we heard this. Did we hear this story? Nora Roberts is famous for saying that. We have everybody got this letter. Everybody got this letter. Not right for your list. And, and I was like, not right we for my list. American, we have our American writer. Well, my brother was like, I think it means they don't want it. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. So <laughs> I kept writing. And then Orange but County. But you have to be in a club, Elda. You want to be in the a club good with Nora Roberts and Jane Ann <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Exactly. Exactly. And so Orange County was exploding at that point because... I read a book about romance and it was interesting because Vivian was a pivotal part of it. It was like these men, these men did not know what they had. They did not know what they had, but they knew they wanted more of it because it was making money. And so all this exploded and editors were literally every month, major editors from New York were flying out to LAX. Now down in Orange County, they're like, we don't want to drive up into LA, but hey, Al, you live in LA. Can you go to LAX and pick up the editors? And they were like, don't you dare pick their brains. It just like you're like a chauffeur. We'll give you gas money, but you just drive them down. Well, you seem like the kind of person who wouldn't be chatty. <laughs> exactly. But the funniest part was I remember I picked up Jackie Bianchi, who I adored. She was with Mills and Boone. And so she was like, okay, fire away with that little British accent. She's like, fire away, ask me anything. And I said, well, I'm not supposed to ask you anything. And she was like, oh, bollocks, just ask me whatever you want. You know, just we're in the car for an hour. Let's go. And she was great. And so these editors would come and they would, they had like the tip sheets and they had all the stuff. I mean, they had, they were so well organized. It was like, here's what we want. Here's what we need. It was so exciting because everybody and their mother wanted romance and everybody was trying to write it. And like Orange County had up to three, 400 members at a time. And they were wonderful presentations. Like the morning would be a local author, but the afternoon would always be like an editor or an agent. And they were great. We should say that the Orange County chapter of RWA until, you know, recently has been the one of the most vibrant chapters of RWA. Yeah, it is the the chapter. Yeah, it is the chapter. I think Texas, Texas is important. California, I mean, not that the others aren't, but like they're the major chapters, but it was just an amazing time. And so I did get an agent and then it was funny because I wrote one romance and, and I remember my agent said, the next book, she says, I'll send this one out, but the next one, try to think of something really interesting, like unusual that'll set you apart. So my sister at the time was training exotic animals. And I thought, that's pretty interesting. Well, that's a perfect Harlequin job. Nobody had done that. And so I, I got information from her and I wrote Untamed Heart. And so I was working at UCLA managing Ackerman Union. And it was a really difficult job because professors would make students buy their $60 textbooks that were just like good for doorstops and much not else. And we'd be shipping them back and forth to the publishers constantly. 
like shipping them over, then shipping them back. It was it was like the biggest waste of postage ever. Mm-hmm. So I was in charge of that. And I'm back there in my my camouflage pants and my gray t-shirt, my hair and up in a bun with a pencil through it, my army boots, you know. And I'm shipping these boxes back. And it was really funny because I remember my agent called and she said, okay, Silhouette turned it down. And I said, okay, what was wrong with it? What do I need to improve? And she goes, no, Elda, I don't want to read you this letter. And I said, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I can learn from criticism. I want you to tell me what's wrong with the book. And she goes, I really don't want to. And I began to get suspicious. And I said, read it to me. And she said, well, okay, I hate this book. What? I, I hate Hollywood people. I hate the industry. This woman needs, to, this woman needs to stop she should not consider a career as a writer. And I'm like, I'm like on the phone before cell phones, gutted, tears coming into my eyes. And I'm saying, okay, okay, don't send it out. Don't send it out. This is Untamed Heart that we're talking yeah. about because Untamed yeah. Heart is about a Hollywood star. Yeah. Yeah. It's about a director directing a movie in Puerto Rico. She's the animal trainer. And it was just like, I hate these people. I hate Hollywood. It's a horrible, you know, tell her to stop. And see, that was the part. I mean, it's fine if you say, we don't really care for Hollywood books. It's not our cup of tea. Yes. But tell her to, you know, I don't want stop the career. And I was like, she's got to know she's an editor. Oh, God. I hope you one day walked right up to her and said, look at me. I'm amazing. <laughs> no, later on at this conference, this woman said to me, why have you never chosen to write for Silhouette? And I thought, oh, if you only knew. If you wow. only knew. You know, we've heard, wow. nobody will name this editor, and I'm not going to ask you to, but we've heard about this Silhouette editor before. Yeah. Yeah, bad letters. Uh, I assume bad letters. it's the same silhouette editor that we've heard from other people. Oh yeah. About, so oh yeah. You know. <laughs> oh yeah. And so I I begged my agent. I said, please don't send it out. I'll give you another book. Please don't send this out. I was like crying on the phone. People people at work. I mean, it was like back in the bowels of the re- receiving and the docks and the trucks and all. But still, a couple of my students were looking at me like, what's going on? And she goes, well, I've already sent it out. American Romance is looking for authors. And I sent it to Vivian Stevens. Yes. And, and I was so pathetic. I was like, get it back. Please get it back. And she's like, oh, honey, one editor likes it. One editor doesn't. So literally, two days later, she calls me at work. You just sold your first book. And I'm like, what? This is like total cognitive dissonance. Like whiplash. Cognitive dissonance. What? The same book? And she goes, yeah, yeah. Vivian Stevens said, oh, oh she said, oh my God, I've just found my action adventure writer. And I went, that's amazing. And I hung up the phone. And at the, at the time, it was a $6,000 advance. And that was close to what I made in a year at that time. And I thought, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to write the next book. I'm, I'm going to give it my, I'm going to give it 100%. So I went to my boss to quit, to basically give her two weeks notice or a month's notice. And she goes, oh, to hell with your notice. And she goes, shut that door. I'm ordering a pizza. How the hell did you sell a book? I want to sell a book. It's like every, every, you know, we're all book people working in bookstores. We all love to read. Within the next two weeks, I was working there before I left. Almost everyone in every department came up to me and said, tell me how you did this. How did you do this? How did you sell this book? So it was hilarious. But Vivian was great. Yeah, tell us about working with Vivian. She was so far ahead of her time. She and Carolyn Nichols both. And I think they they again exuded that energy. They had that just that magnetism. They were they were almost like little rock stars in their own right. Because like an editor would get up and talk about stuff and you'd be kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Carolyn and Vivian, they'd command the stage. They'd say, this is what I want. They were absolutely 100% sure in what they were doing and what they wanted. 
at this time, Carolyn was working for Harlequin later. So for everyone who's listened later, she goes on to essentially be the founding editor at Love Swept. Right. At this point, she was a Harlequin editor. I don't know. I don't remember Carolyn at Harlequin, but Vivian, I was I was working with Vivian and she was starting this new line, American Romance. She had come to talk to us about it. And she said, the hero can be 20 pounds overweight. You know, they can be a little balding. She can be realistic, you know, uh, make them real people. And I really kind of liked the concept. And so I remember she said to me, I want the books to be you. You know, I want you to write what you want to write. I want it to be your voice, your ideas, your imagination. Just go wild. I will, you know, tell me your idea. Nothing is too crazy. I'll help you shape it. But just go, you know, just go. And she liked Untamed Heart a lot. And I remember the reason I put in the condom, and this is funny because I hadn't thought about this in years. This will sound like the Stone Age to you guys because you're much younger. I grew up in a town, I went to high school in a town of 1,200 people. It was still very much a, I would call it a boys' town, like lots of hunting, fishing, ice fishing, skiing, sledding. Women were, you know, married young, had their kids, and kind of disappeared, is the only way I can put it. They disappeared. And Marriage, I remember Jesse Bernard once said, a sociologist, she said, marriage is a great deal for men and children, but not so great for women. And I remember reading that and thinking, yep. When women did not have access to birth control and biologically the sex drive is strong, I had numerous friends who got pregnant. And back in the day, there was no abortion. If you could find a doctor, you could go, you could get someone to do the job. And then if you started bleeding out, you went to the emergency room. And I had two friends, older sisters that I, they told me later on, it was like the most terrifying experience of their lives, which is why abortion must always be safe and legal. But you had two choices. And I had two girlfriends in high school who their beginning of their senior year, or summer of their junior year, whatever, they went to visit their aunt and they came back and they looked gutted. And I, I never forgot the look in their eye, like dead eyes, because they had had their baby and given it up for adoption. Because that was the option. Or you cornered the guy and married him. And if he thought he was trapped, it was not a good marriage. And it usually ended up in divorce. So birth control back then, I worked at a drugstore and the condoms were in a glass case behind the pharmaceutical counter. You could only buy them if you were married. This is how bad things were. You know, when I look back, it's like, God, it was like the Stone Age. But the thing was, I couldn't in good faith, and all the romances, the historicals, of course, they would have sex and then she'd be pregnant and there'd be a big brouhaha, but in the end, he would love the baby. But with a contemporary, I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I had interesting parents because my mother is from Puerto Rico, staunch Roman Catholic, could not have the sex talk with me. So my dad was like, this is very embarrassing, but we're going to have the sex talk. And I, I don't think I can look at you while we do this, but I need you need to be protected. And I remember he told me, teenage boys will do anything. They would do a knothole in a plank. You have to understand this about male nature. And he said, they will tell you, I love you. They will promise you the moon. And you are a very romantic girl. And you will have sex with him. And Monday morning, he will be telling all his friends at school and you will be brokenhearted. And that did happen to one of my girlfriends where she gave it up to a guy and she was the town pump for the last two years of high school. And she never had a boyfriend because she didn't dare. And I remember thinking, God, that's awful. But 
you know, my dad taught college and he said many a woman's college career was derailed because some guy said, I love you, I'll be with you forever. And she ended up raising the baby with her and her mom and dropping out of school. And he said, I don't want that for you. I don't know how more plainly to put it. And I was like, got it, dad, got it. Because he was pretty, I mean, he said, I don't expect you to be a virgin when you're married. It's different times, but pick a man who likes women. And I was uh, at 16, so stupid, 14. Daddy, all men like women. He's like, no, they don't. Pick a man who really does like and treasure women. So when I approached Untamed Heart, I thought, okay, I've got to somehow put birth control into it. And I said to Vivian, can I do that? And she said, if you can figure out a way to make it work, I'm all for it. She was like, she, what Vivian gave us more than anything was she trusted us as writers. She trusted our skill. I mean, I was still a, a pretty raw beginner, but she gave me wings. You know, she trusted me. She trusted me. She just said, you can do it. She gave you confidence. I just want to say, I want to interrupt because I um, reread Untamed Heart this week and I marked the page because I think it's important. I mean, a lot of people, you have to, I, I bought a copy on on, oh. <laughs> on uh, eBay so that I could read I have it. my copy. <laughs> there is this, I mean, first of all, the hero, um, Ryan, is so, that first scene, Jen I don't think you've read this book, and let me tell you, you're gonna love it because they're in a sleeping bag. In the oh, house. I love that. I mean, ah. Jen's, that's Jen's like kink. <laughs> um, I love it. So they're in a sleeping bag, and it's very romantic, and like he doesn't expect them to be in a sleeping bag together, and he says, "Like I can't, we can't have." He like brings her to orgasm and then he's she's like what about you and he's like we can't have sex because i can't protect you and he says it just like that i can't keep you safe and it is great and then when they finally do do it you know he it's so well done i mean you do you basically begin what we have all done in contemporaries where you know the drawer opens and closes <laughs> And yeah. he turns away and then he turns back and then they do it. Right. And it's really, I mean, you put it, you put it on page. So Elda, I want to talk. So first of all, I mean, she, Vivian was absolutely right to, to trust you. You did a magnificent job. It's so romantic and beautiful. And I want to ask, because I know that you also wrote, a, you ended up writing a piece about condom usage for RWA magazine. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the response to it, because I know not every writer was super excited to put uh, safe sex on page. Well, some, some women said it completely destroys the romantic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine quipped. It's so romantic. <laughs> Well, the thing that was funny, a friend of mine quipped and said, no, the real fantasy is that the guy would offer the protection. And I was like, now, now, let's not go there. You know, <laughs> let's not do that. I just, I think I was lucky in a weird kind of way because my mother being from the Caribbean, she had a different take on sex. She was very prudish and couldn't give me the talk because she could not imagine me having sex in high school or even early college. But at the same time, she was like, it is a universal experience with when you're with the right man. It's the most wonderful feeling in the world. It's fabulous. Don't be ashamed. Don't be, you know, don't have any shame or trepidation or fear. It's a wonderful thing. It gives you babies. You know, it's wonderful. And so I think in some ways I had a a, a healthier attitude towards sex because I had a lot of female friends who were like, 
And it, it really made me sad. It was like, I can't even touch myself down there. It's so disgusting. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? That's you. That's you. And then, of course, our bodies ourselves. And that was blowing up at the same time. And so we were all kind of learning at the same time. But I felt, I just kept saying, I think it's intensely romantic if a man protects a woman. And if he looks out for her, it's intensely romantic and intensely beautiful, you know. And uh, and I never, ever thought it's so funny. And I'll tell you something you guys did for me. I wasn't going to put up my first four books on ebook, my first four Americans. And after I got your letter, I sat down and I thought, no, I need to. And I'm not going to, because people said, change them, put in cell phones, make them different. And I thought, no, I was going to call them blast from the past. And then I thought, no, they're so badly written. I don't know if I want to put them up. I don't they're know. not badly written. But then I thought, so no, they're romantic. Well, they're part of history. They're, I mean, I, I reread... I reread Untamed Heart and it was like, God, Ryan's kind of a, God, he's forceful. But then I realized like halfway through the book, he says, I love you. It's different for me. This is different for me. Trust me. All the bullshit in the tabloids, you know. So it was a very weird experience for me. And I thought, no, I'm going to put these books up. So you guys are responsible for that. The oh, first I'm four so glad books. to hear that. So are That's they? amazing. They'll, they're coming soon. Yeah, they're coming. Oh, I'm so glad. I will I will get Untamed Heart up really soon. The other thing about the back alley stuff was that a lot of girls first time out couldn't have a baby, got abortions, and became sterile. And that's a terrible thing for a woman to have to go through. They got infections. They got sterile. It's so unnecessary. And, I, you know, it, it, people think like, I, I think a lot of people think it's like, well, have an abortion, have two. And it's not like that. It's It's not that simple a thing because my girlfriend's older sister she had three children they were struggling they could barely feed the third one they were using birth control she got pregnant and it was a, she said it was the most horrible decision of her life because she's already a mother she knows you know but she knew that they wouldn't survive with another child and you know life can be very grim and very tough and so you know, people who say like women who have abortions, yeah, I'm sure there are women, women who use it as birth control, or there are irresponsible women, sure. But I think the vast majority, it's a really hard decision to make, and it's nothing they, they take lightly or think is just a walk in the park. You know, it's not, it's not an easy thing. And so to me, birth control, have it there. You know, a young girl could read, I felt like a young girl could read Untamed Heart the way I read those Harlequins when I was in high school. And she would be, when he says we're not protected, she would know what that, you know, I'm sure she would figure out that's birth control. Wow, that's what a hero does. And, and I've had women come up to me, like younger women, and say, I never knew men could be that way with women when I read your books. I never knew men could care that much for women. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, so, you know, a lot of authors go, ah, we're not curing cancer. But we are affecting people. We are affecting people who read our books. You know, I, that reader response of like, I never knew that this was a thing I could expect. When we talk about yeah. high expectations and romance, that's what we're talking about is it shouldn't be a high expectation, an unrealistic expectation. It should be exactly an expectation. Exactly. exactly. You know, it's funny, Elda, because I, I mean, we're... I'm 47, and a lot of the stories you told about high school, and no, this isn't about me, but I'm going to tell a story about my mom. And, and when I was in high school, there I went to a Catholic high school, and there were a lot of girls who, who were pregnant, right, who got pregnant. And like you, it was some of them gave the baby up for adoption. Some of them got married really young. And I will never forget, I don't, I don't, this is like a moment where, like, you have that moment where you're like, this was when my parents did the best job parenting. So, 
there was a girl in my neighborhood who was my, I was a sophomore in high school and this girl was a senior. She was my older brother's age. And she was walking by, my mom and I were in our driveway for some reason. And this girl walked by with her baby in a stroller. And my mom looked at me and she was like, look, I don't ever want that to be you. So if you're going to have sex, I want you to know I will take you to the doctor and you can go on birth control. And then there was this long pause and she said, okay, I'm not going to do it, but one of my friends will. Ah, (laughs) What a great mom. What a great mom. And I will never forget that moment. But this was, you know, this was almost 1990 when we would have had this conversation. And And we're still not protecting our girls. We are still... Not protecting our girls because you look at rapes on college campuses. You look at girls going, oh, a great dad story. My dad was exceptional. I never knew it till I began talking to other women. When I went away to school and again, because he was a college professor, he saw all this. He said, when you go to a frat party, don't drink the punch. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like Harry Buffalo, where they put all the alcohol, all the different bottles, right? And he goes, you don't know what's in it. And he said, what you do is you ask for a can of Coke and you watch them open it up. And honey, when you go to the bathroom, you take that Coke can with you. And I'm like, daddy, you are like, I, I'm going to be, I'm never going to be married. I, I, you know, I'm going to be like a, a widow. I'm going to be like that maiden aunt up in the garret, the way that you're doing my love life. You know, and he said, trust me on this. So my first frat party at Kenyon, I got my, I remembered my dad, I got my Coke, didn't take it to the bathroom. So I'm peeing in the bathroom and I'm thinking, I should have taken my Coke, but what the heck? So I come back and the guy hands it to me and he says, here you go. And I just had this weird, I always follow my gut, just had this weird feeling. And I said, why don't you take a sip first? And he hesitated. And I was like, you bastard. And I went and I opened up another can of Coke because, you know, date rape drugs, maybe they weren't date rape, like the the actual drug, but, you know, they could put stuff in to make you pass out or whatever. And I remember I cracked open another Coke and I was just looking at him like thinking, and then all of a sudden I thought, why am I here? Why am I here? And I left and I never went to another frat party. But it's like, I have friends who, oh God, the stories I could tell you. And the the two pregnancies that affected me the most were a girlfriend I had two years ahead of me, senior year, got pregnant. Her father made the guy marry her and they rented a house across the street from us. And during the summer, my bedroom window was open and I was reading my Harlequins and I could hear them fighting and they had been so in love. And they were fighting because they had no money and her dad was paying for stuff. And her husband was like, how do you think it makes me feel that your dad's paying for everything? And, and you know, just endless fights. And I remember thinking, this is so sad. And they did end up getting divorced. And the other one was my best friend from high school. She got pregnant and her mom was like, that's it, you're out. So she walked down to our house and looked at my mom. And I remember my mom said, Elda, you need to leave the room just for now. So I snuck over to the stairway and I sat in the stairway and I listened. And my girlfriend said, told my mom, you know, I'm pregnant. And my mother said, your mother loves you. She'll come around until then you'll stay here with us. And I still remember my dad grading papers, walking around. This this was the era, a lucky strike hanging out of his mouth and rocking the baby because he wouldn't sleep. You know, but it, but it's like oh both lives derailed and not that children aren't wonderful, but the ability to time your family. And to be sure that the man is marrying you for the right, you know what I mean? Like you're getting off to a good start. There are people who make it work and God bless them. But, you know, a lot of times it doesn't. So it was so funny. I had never thought of this, but I just remember having a more, it was like an ethical dilemma. I couldn't, 
write a love scene where they just did it and then nothing happened to her or she got pregnant and it all worked out, you know, even though that's a huge romance trope, but I couldn't do it. You know, have you ever written a secret baby book? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, I wrote I you know, I always challenged myself to do something like Vivian would say, like, you always do these things that are so far out. I did Bachelor Mother, and that was I think it was the first book where a woman asked a man to get her pregnant because she she had a I read a column in Dear Meg in the star and she said, Dear Meg, I've always known I wanted to be a mother. I have problems with my ovaries. I have six months to get pregnant and no uh, boyfriend in sight, I'm thinking of asking my best friend to get me pregnant. What do you think? And dear Meg was like a staunch conservative. And she said, do it, honey, do it. <laughs> you know, you want that baby, you go for it. And I thought, there's a book here. So that was one of my most popular Americans because she asked him to get her pregnant. Oh, I can't wait. And then they fall in love. And then they fall in love. And then I actually did one for Temptation called uh, Rescue Me. And the review I got on Amazon said, Eldaminger has written a romance with absolutely no conflict, and it works. And I don't know how she did it, but it works. And so, I, you know, I, I like I like challenging myself. I did Daddy's Little Dividend. I did every other chapter in the past, like a present, past, present, past, and then it all tied up at the end. And my editor called and said, "You know, you didn't tell me you were going to do this much. <laughs> you didn't tell me you were going to do this much flashback." And I said, "Well, you know, what the heck." And she said, but it does work, so we'll go ahead. And and one of the ways I did my career, two things I did that were really crucial that I recommend to all authors. One thing I did was I always turned in full manuscripts because I saw what happened to romance writers when they did a proposal and then they turned in the, they bought, the book was sold. So the publisher had you. And then basically they had to rewrite it three and four times because it wasn't quite what they wanted. And it was just month after month after month. So, and they were like, well, why would you write the whole thing? What if it's wrong? And I said, if it's wrong, I'll start another book. But I, I want the whole book to be there so they see what they see is what they get. And 90% of the time it was fine. And the other thing I always recommended my mom, God bless her. When I sold my first book, she said, now darling, you need a lawyer. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, you need a lawyer to look over your contract. And I said, what? You know, because I was down in Orange County, nobody had a lawyer, you know. And she said, you are now a small business and you need to protect yourself. Find a lawyer. We're in Hollywood. I'm sure you can find an entertainment lawyer. I found a great lawyer. She did my first three contracts, my first 13 Americans. And she there was a, there was a, all these clauses and it said, the rights clause. She said, here's where the money is and here's where you need to protect yourself. And it was very funny because it was number F, which was appropriate because it said, and all other rights that may ever come into existence. And I said, what the hell is that? I signed one of those <laughs> without an agent, first contract. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was funny because her name was Susan and she said, honey, what if they somehow figure out a way to project your book on the moon? So that simultaneously everybody can read it and you get no money from that. And I was like, oh. And so book 14, I think it was 13 or 14, Harlequin let my agent know, we really like Elva. We really like her books, but we don't like her that much. You know, no more of this. <laughs> it's like she can't push for anything else. But then when ebooks came into existence, everyone who had signed and all other rights that may come into existence lost their ebooks. And I've gone to conventions, science fiction, fantasy, mystery, people have come up to me. How did you keep your books? How did you end up with all those titles to put up as ebooks? And it was because of my mom. Wow. So good contract lawyer, full manuscripts. That's that's just the way I went. <laughs> yeah.
This is incredible. <laughs> I'm, I love all of these stories. So you, so Elda, just walk us through. So at this point, you've, you, you wrote, you wrote for Harlequin American. Obviously, Vivian Stevens was only there for about a year and a half. And then right. you were, and then you moved to, you were moved to a different editor. Who was your sort of longstanding editor? Did you have one? I had Vivian and then I had, then I had Debbie Matucci. She was wonderful. Then I, American had a problem because the problem with American was they kept changing the focus. Like one year it was small town babies and apple pie. Then the next year it was something else. And the next year it was something else. And it's really hard, you know, when they have this really distinct way you have to have the book, but they change it every year. Like desire was like straight through. You could, you could know five years from now, desire would be basically a really sexy book, you know, and, and a good conflict. And so I remember I called, who did I call? I left a, a call. I think Randall Toy was, no, I called Debbie and I said, I, I want to try and write for a different line. I feel like I'm getting stale. And it was really weird because Randall Toy called me up and said, no, 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 you will not go to Silhouette. Uh, where would you like to go? And I said, well, where could I go? And he said, how about Temptation? And I said, good, I'll go there. So I loved working with Birgit Davis Todd. Would you explain to everybody the difference? What is te- What did Temptation mean at the time? Temptation was like 65,000 words, so middling length, not short, not long, and really sexy. Temptation was like, it's like Oscar Wilde. I can resist anything but temptation, right? It was kind of the precursor to Blaze, is what I would say. It was a great line. It was a great line. I wish they'd never destroyed it or cut it. I I thought it could have gone, I would have written for them forever. But I loved Birgit. She was such a, she was probably at this point the best editor. Well, Vivian was Vivian was the best as far as innovation and starting out. But as far as, as just editing and getting me to be the best writer I could be, I would say Birgit Davis Todd. Because she, she went to McGill University and got a degree in editing. I mean, just an incredible woman. And she could always find that one piece in the manuscript that didn't work. And she pointed out, you go, of course, oh my God, I didn't even think of that. But she was great. And then I did do two historicals, and then I segued into bigger books for Berkeley, and and then I went to straight to eBooks. The last five or six years have been dicey because I've had some death in my family and some family stuff, and so it's been a little slower than I would like. But it, it's like I, you know, it's it's not a self indulgent thing, but it's like when things when the shit hits the fan, I'm not one who can just sit down and write, you know. And and um, but I've I've enjoyed putting the older books up online. I've gotten good response from them. And I really like doing the the longer books. And it's funny because I, I kind of had a little bit of a friction with Berkeley as far as the bigger books, a lot of changes with editors and stuff. And I with the fling, I had wanted to do the other two women's stories. And now with ebooks, I'm thinking now I can, you know. And there's so many, there's so many people I know who had mystery series. And after three or four, when they didn't sell the way the publisher wanted them to, they're like, okay, you're done with that series. And now they're putting them all up online and readers are buying them. So, you know, I I like that ebooks are giving publishers a run for their money. I like that. Can you talk a little bit about readers? You talked a little bit about this when we talked about, you know, readers responding to your your human kind, decent men. Um, but, but can you talk a little bit about the romance community of readers and how you found them and how they came to you? It is so amazing. I went to my first few writers conferences and there is no fan that loves you 
And, and I don't even like the word fan really, but there's no reader who loves you the way a romance reader does. And I thought about this and I remember back in the day with presents, I remember all my girlfriends who had babies, they were like, I'm run ragged all day. But at the end of the day, when the kids are in bed, and my husband's snoozing in the, in the reclining chair, that's my time. I get to open my presents and I read a chapter or two and that's my time. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, because I, I, I've had, I'm a serial monogamist, but I never married, never had kids. But I remember thinking I always had my time. I always had reading time. I always had time. And what would that be like to be so busy during the day that you, you would read a little bit at night, you would read a little bit at night and that was your time. And, it, and I thought, what are these books giving women? And I have a real theory about Flame and the Flower and the early romance books. Because I think with the 50-year Woodowist anniversary coming up, we also have to really pay homage to Nancy Coffey. Because that woman was a freaking genius. And I love, this, I love the story. Slush Pile takes it home, can't stop reading, calls her up, edits it. But basically a 600 pay, I mean, this huge thing. And they, they, the thing that she did that was so genius was she said, I'm going to put this out as a big spectacular. And it was a big print run, big cover, big everything. So it was noticed. Nancy Coffey was the editor who pulled the flame and the flower off the slush pile at Avon Books and made essentially romance, an, an Avon, historical romance and mass market romance would not exist. Exactly. Um, without Nancy Coffey at Avon at the time, which was not HarperCollins. It was a pulp publisher. It will, it was funny because they go, we wouldn't have careers without Kathleen Woodowis and Nancy Coffey. I'm always like, and Nancy Coffey. Then Rosemary Rogers sends her manuscript. She addressed it to the editor who edited The Flame and the Flower, care of Avon Books. And Nancy gets that. And, and all these books start coming out and coming out. So they have a bad rap, you know, the whole bodice ripper idea, the whole the whole rape concept idea. And I think people were very uncomfortable with it and men were really uncomfortable with it because women were having sex and enjoying sex. And this was a, I know it sounds like I'm a dinosaur, but this was like such a new concept, like Frank Yerby and Scarantino and all these guys who wrote before, they would fade to black when they, the door closed or the cave, you know, the, the firelight flickered and died or whatever happened. And then the next couple of scenes, suddenly she'd be pregnant and you'd be like, oh, I guess they did it. You know, I mean, you never got the sex and Woodowitz blew open the bedroom door. And so the thing about the, the rapes, I, I gave this a lot of thought and I thought back in the day, and I'm in a weird generation because the women before me, like if you got engaged, you could have sex with your your engaged guy. Because that was like, you were already going to be married. What the heck? If the baby came a month early, who cared? You know, or two months early. But it was like men were very much like, where'd you learn that? Where'd you hear about that? What's going on? You, you, you have to remember no internet, no porn, except for guys like projected in a garage on a, on a, you know, like a movie thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, it wasn't like it is now where everything's at the touch of a button. And so men were very much, where'd you learn that? What'd you hear about that? Wait a minute, where, who've you been with? What's going on? So women were very constrained and they were put in this box. And I think a lot of women's depression is they don't get to be their authentic self. They don't get to be who they really are because they're afraid that if they are who they really are, mother, father, husband, even kids will abandon them. So I think that does cause depression. So then suddenly this book comes out and you know, Shauna especially, here's this woman who completely, even though some people found her horrible, she was her authentic self. 
and she did what she wanted to do. And God knows, you know, Sweet Savage Love, all of Rosemary Rogers' heroines were willful and and some spoiled and proud, and, and they just did what they wanted to do. But then we come to the sex, and it's like, okay, how do you have women have sex in an era where nice girls do but may not enjoy it? Or you won't. See, a friend of mine said it beautifully because she said, you know, we're so screwed up, Elle, because we're told, keep your knees together, don't have sex, don't think about things, even though, you know, the hormones are raging. Then suddenly a wedding ring's put on your finger, and kaboom, you're supposed to turn right on and have multiple orgasms. It doesn't work that way. And I was like, yeah, it's true. So how do you get a woman to have sexual enjoyment? And I thought, well, you have the hero. And I, I said this in Boston, RWA, because people were saying these rape sagas are horrible. And I said, some of them are rape. I mean, there were books that had pretty awful rapes, but a lot of them, I call them forced seduction because it's like a gorgeous man will not take no for an answer. And then the other little tidbit I dug out from a sexologist was he told me the number one fantasy of men and women both is being forced to have sex with someone who's incredibly desirable. And I thought, works for me. I mean, you know, like, okay. And so it made total sense because it was it was almost like, I know it sounds crazy, but it's almost like the only way women of slightly older than my generation, because it was starting to get liberated when I went to college, but the women who were older than me, who were the primary readers of the, the, the bodice rippers, I don't like the term, but it, it gave them permission because it was it wasn't their fault. They couldn't do anything about it. This guy was overwhelming. He overwhelmed them. And they're and this is my favorite. Every book had something line along this line. Her body betrayed her. That to me was almost like a not a trope. I'm trying to think of the right word. It was almost like code for we all know we all want to have great sex. We all know the body is primed for it, your prime reproductive years. It's the whole purpose of nature. If if you don't reproduce, I mean, it's like, I always think of Princess Diana. Once she had those two boys, she was disposable, unfortunately. But But it's like, that's the tooth and claw of nature. Once you reproduce, you are expendable. And so everything in nature goes toward making sure that happens. And so you have this incredible drive, and then you have a society that says, Keep it in check. You're in charge. Don't you let things go too far. Well, and it's your fault. And it, exactly. And you're the temptress. That was the, I think that was a big part of the witch trials, all of it. You're the temptress. You're the one that led him on. And I, I thought about it and I thought, what is it like to have an erection when a beautiful woman walks by? Wouldn't you feel kind of out of control? Because I, I remember guys that I was close to in high school, they were like, oh, it's the worst. Oh, my God. It's just horrible. It's like I have to wait. Everyone else is filing out into the hallway, and I have to sit there with my book in my lap. And I thought, oh, this poor guy, you know. But but I, that's my theory about those books is that they, you know, we, we look at them with modern day sensibility, and, and we forget the condoms behind the counter that only married people can have. We forget the guy saying to the girl, where'd you learn that? What's going on here? Who have you been with? We forget there was a girl who was raped by a guy in town and he got six of his friends to say they'd been with her and it was all thrown out. And we forget, we forget the frat parties and there, it, this stuff still goes on. It's not, a, I don't think it's as bad because I think women have more of a voice, but we need to remember. And, and Wudu is in a sense, I think the reason she is so loved is that this girl went from being penniless and pretty much an orphan and scared to death and the guy thinks she's a prostitute and basically does rape her, but she's like so scared she can't even tell him what's going on. 
But in the end, she comes around to having his love, his respect, his admiration, and she has like her own dignity back. It's like the women were paid attention to in these books. And I really think it's important. They were like a stepping stone. I don't think you could sell one now. I don't think the modern day audience would buy any of it. But I think they were a crucial stepping stone and, and they need desperately to be looked at, at the con- in the context of the time. Because I remember thinking, this is great. This, this book is so hot. I mean, now it's like there's stuff out there that's, you know, burn the house down. It's so hot. But back then we read them and we were like, oh my God, women actually having sex. And they're, well, I remember arguing with a professor and saying, every damn woman in a book written by a man, if she has sex, she dies. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary. I, I just go on and on and on. Charlotte Gilman Perkins, you know, the yellow room. Every single book, you know, she has sex, she enjoys it, kaboom, she's dead. It's like the person who goes, maybe we should go into that basement and see if that killer's down there. You always know that person's going to die. It's the same with the women. And he was like, I never thought of it that way, but I, I thought women in all of literature, it's like 90% of the time they have sex and they're punished. And now we suddenly have a genre where she has sex and no matter what else has happened to her, rape or not, she's not killed. She lives and she lives to tell the tale. So I, I think it's, you know, we're coming up on 50 years and, and uh, Widow has just wrote the story she wanted to read. That's what blows my mind. But it changed the world. Did you ever meet her? No, and I wish I had. She had horses. She raised Morgan horses. And there was a big scandal where she had an affair with the stable master. And I loved that. Really? Good for her. Left her, left her husband and yeah, yeah. And she had this love affair with the stable master. And I thought, only Kathleen, I love her. Only Kathleen. And then, of course, Rosemary Rogers was a wild child. So she was great, too, you know. But they were terrific women, you know. When you um, wrote your historicals, did you did you feel, so you wrote Harlequin historicals? No, I wrote one for Zebra and one for Berkeley. Oh. Big ones, big fat ones. Big fat and, ones. Oh, and, and I'll tell you a funny story about Velvet Fire. The editor there, who shall remain nameless, she said, just send it to me. It'll be fine. And I knew it wasn't terrific. I mean, I knew it was my first book. I wrote it handwritten on legal pads with big clicks, you know, typed it up on a regular typewriter. I'm really dating myself. But I remember thinking, I've got to really go over it. I've written six Americans. I I know a little bit more. I've got to go through it with a red pen. She was like, no, 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 no. And I said, no, I insist. And so a friend of mine and I, we went through the whole thing re-edited it, retyped it, sent it in. So at that point, I think she was so frustrated with me. At one point she called me up and she said, you know, you effing writers, you think it's what's between the covers that sells the books. Let me tell you something. It's the cover we make. It's the publicity campaign. It's the, it was everything. She listed everything but the actual writing. And I thought, oh my God, I cannot work with this woman again. So I just kept my mouth shut and the book came out and it did pretty well. But I never forgot that. I, there's, there's, you have to be careful. That, like my dad said, find a man who likes women. Find an editor who likes writers. You know, find an agent who likes writers. You know, because it it can be brutal out there. It can be tough. It can be tough. And the other thing with Velvet Fire was the first sex scene. She's she's sold at an auction. She's the vicar's daughter. I love it. Into a bordello. It has to make her Put it survive. In my veins. <laughs> this is like such a classic bodice ripper. And so she's up on stage draped in this white silk and the candles are burning. And of course, our hero goes against the villain to buy her. And then the villain, that's it. It's a blood feud for the rest of the book. But 
the the, the mistress of the household, the, the the brothel owner, she looks and thinks, oh boy, this girl's going to put up a fight, and this guy is not going to like this. So she drugs her. She gives her like an aphrodisiac, and so this sex scene is wild in this in this bedroom. But it's like great sex, and of course she wakes up mortified, and then of course they go on to love each other. But I'm ordering it now. I everyone, I was, every, everyone I'm in Annie, going right now to buy it. Well, everyone everyone in Antioch read this book, right? So a friend of mine who shall remain nameless, she well she ran the beauty salon in town, and it was like steel magnolias. And she called me up and she said, "L." Um, I know you're going to come home this summer, but she's like, I don't think you should come home for a while. And I was like, what are you talking about? What's wrong? What's wrong? I want to come see you guys. And she goes, well, um, and I won't say his name, but you know, this guy we both know, his wife has velvet fire on her bedside table. <laughs> so she's taking a bubble bath and he was like, what's this shit? You know, this, these horrible little books that my wife is reading and that, and that smart ass Zelda. And so the book falls open to the big sex scene because of course, She's read it so many times and enjoyed it. So the book falls open and he starts reading it. And I guess he went ballistic and he called a bunch of his male friends who were married to her contemporaries and said, do you know this shit our wives are reading? Do you know what Elda put in this book? Oh my God. You know. And so my girlfriend said, you're kind of persona non grata around here for a while. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll come back like next spring. And she was like, it may have cooled down by then, but it, see, it's like there's such a. This is one of the things I think with romance. This is the wrong way to deal with it, husbands. Like, oh, I know if that the way to falls open to that page that has been read, read over it. and over again. Read it, read take it. notes, get yep. it together, and yep. have a great weekend. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But he was so. That was my era. Men would be very threatened by women having any sexual knowledge whatsoever or any thoughts or desires you know like I, I had a girlfriend who told her husband a fantasy she had and he goes where'd you come up with that he, he shamed her and she said never talked about fantasies again ever read them in my books but not in my marriage no, so you know, I, I don't mean to be wrong. like heavy banger, but it happens it happens so that that I thought was pretty funny though I, I did get a laugh out of that because I know this guy and I can picture him like ah, oh, what's this crap my wife's reading and what the hell <laughs> it was pretty funny <laughs> made me laugh made me laugh well, I just bought Velvet Fire, and I think we should do a deep dive episode on it. I'm just going to say. We're going to have a great night. <laughs> Elda, one question we really like to um, to ask people is, um, like, what's a book that you're most proud of or a book that you hope outlives you? If there was sort of a, this is my my best work. I have three uh, out of my whole genre, out of my whole group of books. I have three that I really am fond of. I would say the first Velvet Fire because it was my first, my baby. I, when I finished that book, I felt I could conquer the world. And I know you probably know what I mean, Sarah. Like You're like, can I do it? Can I do it? Can I do it? And you, when you hit the end on that first book. So the second book is crucial because there are a lot of one book wonders. But that first book, when you finish that book, you're like, oh my God. And that whole book came to me in a dream. I dreamed the entire damn book and I just wrote it down. I take no credit. But I love that book. I mean, I was writing it while I was driving out to LA. I, I was typing it at night when I was, I mean, that I had such a passion for that book. I had to get it done. So I would say Velvet Fire for sure. The second one, strangely enough, is a very strange little book I did called Billion Dollar Baby. And it was about a bulldog that inherited millions of dollars. And I inserted kind of a mystery into an American and I read it again, the National Enquirer. I read, I read the tabloids in line at the market. And it said, um, 
racehorse inherits millions of dollars. And then it talked about all these animals that were left money. And I thought, oh, and I had a bulldog as a kid. So I made it a bulldog. And I love that book because it it said a lot about what I feel about. I do animal rescue and, and you know, it, it, it had a lot of my philosophy about animals and about broken people and about how anybody can heal. And then I would say the third book, I really, I felt like when it was done, it was like, yes, I got what I wanted to say down on the page. And that would be the fling because I, that was my first big contemporary. And I just loved it. I just, that book was a joy from beginning to end. I just laughed my ass off writing it and had such a good time. And I had readers tell me, I'll never make it to Hawaii, but I went there courtesy of the fling. I've been to Hawaii now because of you. And, you know, it's funny because you say the thing about the readers, there were two letters over the years that really touched me. One was Untamed Heart, and this 17 year old wrote me like lined paper, cursive writing, dear Eldaminger. And she said, I never knew that a girl could train wild animals. I never knew that a girl could even do this. And again, it's the time, you know, I'm dating myself. But she said, I've always loved animals and I'm going to find a way to work with them like Samantha. And thank you for showing me it is possible. And I'm like bawling. I showed the letter to my sister and she's like, oh my God. And the other letter I loved was, and I I know this Midwest sensibility because I went to high school in Illinois and this was a woman in Minnesota. And she said, dear Eldaminger, you don't know me, but I know you. And she said, I want to thank you because I finished reading Daddy's Little Dividend. And she said, today was a hard day for me. Today was a very hard day for me. The five-year anniversary of my mom's death. And then she said, and my youngest son left for college. So she said, it's all about being a mom and a mother and losing my mother and not being a mother anymore in the same way. And I was so depressed. So I had my TBR pile and your book was on the top and I started reading it. And a couple of hours later, you you just, and this is the Midwest. I love this. And I, I truly love this. And you just perked me right up. You just perked me right up. And I'm like reading this letter, bawling my eyes out. And that that to me is worth thousands of dollars, any advance, to know that you touch people. That's what it's all about. You know, that to me, that's what it's all about. But I love that. You just perked me right up. <laughs> so, so Minnesota. Elda, I am so glad you answered my letter. (laughs) Oh, I am too. This has been so much fun. Oh, I'm so happy. And I just know our listeners are going to be so riveted to these stories. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. You guys, I am so touched by the fact that you guys are doing this oral history because I don't want it to die. I want people to know the, the excitement, the fun, the the privilege it was to work with these terrific women. And, you know, both Carolyn and, and um, Vivian, they were powerhouses. They, they were women in a world at that point that was still pretty much dominated by men. And now publishing has a lot more women in it and we're used to it. You know, we're used to the all the powerful women in publishing, but they were amazing. I mean, literally when they got on the stage, it was like they were rock stars. And I'll, I'll tell you one Carolyn memory I have. I was at a convention and we were all setting up to autograph. And so you know how they have the U shape, like the, the U shape and, and the, the bottom of the U is when the people come in the door and then the two sides and the authors sit on the inside and you have your little placards and everything in your piles of books and then you go up to the register and it's for literacy. So a bunch of us were sitting around and there were, there were four seats on the bottom of the U and Carolyn came in and man, she was a powerhouse. Never mean, but my God, you did not mess with her. 
And she came up and she said to the women there, she goes, you have to move, you have to move, you have to move. And they were like, well, well, oh, okay. And they moved to the side of the U. And she spread out, like, remember how Love Swift was like that pinky purple? She spread out a pinky purple, uh, beautiful uh, cloth. And she put flowers up and everything and all the different, it was Iris Johansson, Kay Hooper, Thayreen Preston, and I, I think it was Billy Green might have been the fourth, but it was the four major Love Swift authors. And she said, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here, candy, bowls of candy, everything. It was like, it was like patent orchestrating a big war. It, it was just like, it was amazing. And I, I was a couple of seats down and I just watched and I went, this woman is amazing. <laughs> You're right at the opening, like people come in, first thing they see. And I mean, like the big placards, you know what I mean? Like the, the posters and the everything, Love Swift, you know, right there. And she was like, here, 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 here. You sit here, smile. You know, and she was like giving them confidence and all. And it was amazing. So they, but they were astounding women. Nobody really knew what they were doing, but they kind of took the ball and ran with it. They were amazing women. Amazing. So it's my, it's my honor to talk about them and to remind people of how wonderful they were and are. Elda, are, are you still a romance reader? Oh, Do you- God, yes. I just finished. I like Lynn Graham. Lynn Graham still writes a lot of Harlequin Presents. They're terrific. I love Presents. I will always read them for the rest of my life. But I will tell you, two of the all-time greats, if, if, your, reader, if your listeners haven't gotten these books, they need to get them used and read them. Yeah. Uh, Harlequin Presents by Roberta Lee, who was a British writer who wrote for television and movies and Presents, called Confirmed Bachelor. And it is one of the funniest books I have ever read. The premise is that she's an editor and he is a misogynist who writes these horrible books about how men should be in the world. And the opening is, is he, his editor can't make it. You have to go to his Caribbean island. And she's like, oh, no, no way. And it's so wonderful is she's a Grace Kelly blonde. And she's, she's a virgin, but she pretends like she's very knowledgeable, a woman of the world. And the, the funniest part of this book is, she has two Scotty dogs. She lives with her parents in, in, in England and they're and they have a place in Scotland and the dogs are called Alex and Hamish. And so at one point she's desperate because he's like, oh, come on, go to bed with me, whatever. And she's like, no, no, you're too tame for me. I, I'm used to two men at a time. And he goes, who are these men? And she says, oh, uh, my good friends, Alex and Hamish. And so he's like, my God, and you won't sleep with me. You think I'm depraved and you're doing that. And so at one point he's trying to track her down and he gets her mother on the phone. And her mother goes, yes. And she's a very nice British lady and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, do you approve of what your daughter is doing with Alex and Hamish? And the mother's kind of nonplussed. And she says, well, I don't see why not. It's excellent exercise. And, and I mean, you're seeing your pants laughing at this book. So that's a great one. And then the other one that everyone loved back in the day was a candlelight ecstasy called Video Vixen. And it was by Elaine Racco Chase. Elaine Racco Chase. And she basically wrote Susan Lucci as a romance character. And this was back ecstasy, like in the 70s, early 80s, maybe 82 or something. And in the and and this guy's coming to interview everyone on the soap opera. And they're like, Vicky, you have to be the one. I mean, you live in a barn in Vermont. You can fruit, you quilt. You're totally like, you have no stains in your past. And one of them was a heroin addict. One of them was an alcoholic. It had to be Vivian Stevens. Oh my God, I think it was. I mean, you can really tell the which books are hers. She always goes further. And it is one of the funniest damn books I have ever read. I I reread it like every two years. And I I love Lynn Graham. I love um, 
I love Betty Meals. And I know people think like, oh my God, you know, but I had a serious lung problem and I found it very comforting to read romances where the hero was a doctor. I just love them, you know, mm-hmm. so, but I, 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 I will read Presents to the Day I Die. I love a good historical. I love Joanna Lindsay. I was brokenhearted to hear she passed. And I'm, I'm so glad you guys are doing this because my, the, the generation ahead of me, it's like the generation that's like five, 10 years older than me, they are starting to go. And, and these days, anybody can go, you know, I mean, it, age is not really a, you know, well, determinant. We've lost the original Avon ladies, right? There's, you know, Patrice yeah. Small and Joanna Lindsay and Rosemary yeah. Rogers. I mean, they're, yeah. they're not here anymore. Well, so. Carolyn Nichols is not, right? So I know. there's I know. people that we would have, I mean, Love Swept was like my line. And when I think about it uh, would have been amazing to talk to her. So oh, she was amazing. They were, they were brilliant and they were tough. They had to be tough to survive in the world sure, they were sure. in. And oh, oh, there was something, I read an article about Vivian that was amazing. And she said she prepared the whole thing about this romance novel. And because Monday they have the book buying meetings, you know, and they say, I'd like to buy this book. I, this is one I think would work. And so she did a whole big preparation and she talked about the book and the guy interrupted her and said, it's a romance, just buy it. And I just thought, oh my God. I mean, we thought we were up against stuff, you know, and, and I find I find the disparaging romance to be really, first of all, people are stupid because I always say, have you read one? Which one did you dislike? And they go, no, I've never read one, but I know they're stupid. And I'm like, oh, that's a brilliant informed opinion for you, you know. But when I find it coming from other women, that's when I really find it kind of disgusting. And especially sometimes other romance writers who somehow feel their books are better than, say, a Harlequin Presents or a, you know, a category romance. So it's it's just it's. I think it's lessening though, because you did ask me, what do you think is happening in romance these days? Nobody can deny that it's Amazon's number one best-selling category. Nobody can deny that it's still making money, and nobody can deny that it's still reaching women. And even back when I worked at Crocs and Brentano's, they said eighty-four percent of the fiction was bought by women. And the funniest thing, I'll end with this because I can't keep you guys going forever, but I love this. I was at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and I can't remember the guy who said this, but it was, he'd had a couple of drinks and we were all shooting the shit after dinner. And he goes, God damn women getting into mystery. Now we have to do fucking character. And I, I, I like, I've got to remember that verbatim because, because I mean, think about a lot of the hard boiled stuff. It was good, but it wasn't real in-depth character. <laughs> I never forgot that. Goddamn women getting into mystery. Now we have to do fucking character. And I, thought, oh my God, I love that so much. But that just made me laugh. I, I mean, I had to run to the bathroom and I always care. Oh, one thing for writers, always carry a notebook or have your phone, your memo pad ready. I would run in the bathroom and in the day it was like a little spiral bound two by three with a little big pen. And I wrote, oh, goddamn women, now we have to do fucking character. <laughs> that is too damn funny. And you know? perfect. perfect. And they were pissed. He was yeah. truly pissed. Because like, now were. it's a lot of work. Now we just can't smash it out. Now it's a lot of work. And I thought, ah, oh, please, you know. So anyway, this has just been a joy. Thank you so much. Well Thank you for coming. That's amazing. Man, everyone, every one of them, it's like, I never know what to expect. And then, boom. I need you to say the story about how we got Elda. So we heard about Elda Minger back in the day 
because we were talking when we did our bodily autonomy episode. We started to get really interested. We were really interested in how we'll put this, we'll put links in show notes. We just reran it recently, but it's worth rerunning it every time we're talking about abortion in the world. Um, but we'll, when we did that episode, we were really interested in how contraception worked on page um, for, for romance novels. And um, Elda came up as the author of Untamed Heart, and Untamed Heart came up as the first kind of, which now, in hindsight, and and I mentioned this in in the podcast, in the conversation with Elda, but it makes sense that Vivian Stevens was a part of this book, right? Of course. I mean, it's, it really does start to feel like you can pick a Vivian Stevens book out of a lineup at this point. Someone's taking risks, someone's doing yeah. something interesting. And it was really amazing to hear Elda talk about how she felt trusted by Vivian. A huge piece of that relationship, of the editor-author relationship, is about trust. And clearly that's what's happening here. What happened at that episode is that Steve Amidown, who was still at the Brown Pop Culture Library, Ran actually, I think, took some screenshots of the page with the scene. I believe they, I'm, I believe they're in a Twitter feed, an old Twitter feed, and also pulled for us the RWA column that she wrote, sort of talking about why it was important to have condoms on page and romance. So that was kind of when she came on our radar. It was in that episode, but we also then actually could look at some of that documentation. Right. And I would say at that point I hadn't read Untamed Heart, but now that I've read Untamed Heart, it's so much more beautiful and romantic, as I said in the episode, as than a, a screenshot could possibly, you know, articulate. So, but that said, so we knew, I mean, I don't know what months ago I texted you and I was like, we should get Aldeminger. And and we have sent that text to each other many, many times. Like, we should get this person. And it's not always, like, we then immediately go get those people. Um, because in this case, she was not easy to find. She does not have an easily accessible email address. I started, I asked around, I posted it to, like, the Avon author group chat. Like, is there, does anybody know? I went to Tessa Dare and I was like, you're in Orange County. I, I'm told El Dominguez is in Orange County. Do you know how to find her? And everybody kind of passed, people were super helpful, but I got passed around and around and around. And um, no Elda. And then I... <laughs> I believe you Googled it. I stopped her a little bit. I got online and I Googled her and I was like, well, if this is her real name and there is an El Dominguez in Orange County, California, low. And behold, and uh, I wrote her a letter. A letter. Sarah showed it to Jen me. Jen was like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. We're doing that now. Uh, and it feels like a message I in a bottle like at this I point. A stamp on a fucking envelope, and I used the United States Postal Service. You did. You also, everybody, it was a dark envelope with a silver Sharpie. It was very nice looking. It was an, anyone would want to open this letter. Because I was like, it can't just be like, a ra- she's going to think it's junk mail. So like, I, I actually will tell you now, I'm going to show you. I bought a bunch of like colored envelopes for this project because I was like, if we have to do it again, I got to up my game on mail. So I sent her a fucking letter, letter, you guys, in the mail. And that woman, 
that wonderful, magnificent woman who you all just met texted me. <laughs> I was like, hey, Sarah, I'm Elda Minger. I got your letter. Yeah, I'm a romance. I was, I'm a romance novelist. I got your letter. I would love to do the podcast. So uh, here we are. So thank you, Postal Service. We're like the only people thanking the Postal Service right now. Killer but for this killer conversation, when she talked about women and reproductive rights and why contraception is so critical on the page. I mean, it just we're we are recording this, everyone, on the first day of the Supreme Court um, hearings on the Mississippi abortion law. And I mean, I just felt like this is it was what a I devastating day. I right. needed to hear this woman talk about this work. Um, my God, she was amazing. She had so many amazing stories. One of the things we like to do is sort of like what stuck with you from that conversation. And maybe it'll change over the time, over time. But at the beginning, kind of just as we were starting, one of the things she said is that she had gone back and was like taking notes for herself and how much joy it brought her to just remember. And I really was so moved by that because that is Romance and joy are synonymous for me. And so, you know, to have someone who has loved romance for her, like, you know, for 50 years and can, you know, stories about women buying Shanna in the bookstore. And I mean, that's the, I have, I have goosebumps because I, I, I'm just so moved to hear that. And, and also I think for me, the, the re, her read of those books in in the context of her time. Yes. Which is so important because we've talked about that, but what do we know? I mean, it's when you hear it out of the voice, you hear the voice from somebody who was there and who experienced it. I mean, uh, that Shanna story blows my mind, not because, I mean, I, of course, if I'd thought about it, maybe I would have come up with it on my own, but I've never heard that perspective from a bookseller. What a cool experience to hear that. Can we also, Jen, I was so happy for you in this moment because when she was talking about jobs, the letter she got from the girl who had never thought that she could work with wild animals, I had a moment of like a light bulb going on because we, you have talked for so many seasons about these books and how these women have these magnificent jobs, these weird, curious, quirky, cool jobs. And we've talked about why that is and what is it about these, what is it about these books and what is it about why these jobs. And of course it made so much sense. Again, like it just fit together. This was formative for me that like women had fascinating, interesting jobs in romance when I was coming up with as a romance reader. And yet now I'm also famous for being the person who's like fossils. Jobs are fossils. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear, you know, and I'm and it's different. And I think the thing that I have really come to and the thing I think I'm sort of struggling with is I feel like um, when we talk about jobs, then it really felt like these were books that really taught me I could do anything. God. I mean, and you know what else I was thinking, Sarah, when she was talking about how he protected her and how that was like deeply romantic? That is the exact thing that you and I talked about when we did our 
when we did our first, like that first episode, right, uh, about tinctures, tonics, and teas, and, and I was talking about a Melanie Green book where he goes out to get her plan B, and I was like, this is what caring looks like. Yep. This, yes. it was deeply romantic to me. And to have that, ex- her, have that same feeling from a book that she read or wrote, you know, it's, uh, 45 years ago, amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I, I want to go back now and read all my favorite contemporaries and like pay close. I, I can't imagine, I don't think I will ever in my life read a contemporary again and not pause for just a heartbeat on that contraception moment and think like, who is taking care of whom here? Because for me, her saying that was revolutionary. Like that is exactly what I want from that moment. And she's so, I mean, Vivian Stevens is, was right. She can write, right? Because that moment on the page in Untamed Heart, and I'm so glad she's re- going to release them in E, and we will, of course, like, explode all over everything when she does yes. so that you all know that you can run and buy it. Um, but that moment in Untamed Heart feels like caretaking in a way that, I mean, it's perfect. And now I just want, like, so if you're out there writing a contemporary right now, think about that. Ask yourself that in that moment. Who is caring for whom? She was great. I would, she should just, her, Vincent Verga, let's just have a party. And I, right now, am like, let's book our flights to Orange County. Well, We'll crash at Lauren's house. She she won't stop us, and we'll just no, go kidnap no, Elda Minger. Yeah, Lauren and Christina will come with us. Oh my god! <laughs> and I just want to talk about. I mean, I I'm sure we've said this on the podcast before, but when Sarah and I first started, like, kind of being friends on Twitter DMs, there was a point at which one of us said to the other. Like, all I want to do is talk about romance all day. And the other one of us was like, me too. <laughs> and that is still, like, that's what Faded Mates is for me. But also, like, to hear, like, God, I feels like I feels like I climbed up a mountain and sat down at the, you know, foot of my elder and heard these amazing words. And I just feel so inspired. And I just love romance so much. God. God. I'm going to go read Velvet Flame. Right the fuck now. We should do a read-along. I just ordered mine from Thrift Books. Oh, look at you. Because, you know, I got to get there before Did you all find the... it first? Did you find it well, first? Well, you never know, right? With Thrift Books, you just never know what well, you're going to get. now I got to go and do that. Well, <laughs> and I didn't have a copy of Untamed Heart. I was buying Harlequin American Romances off of eBay. And I did get a couple of El Dominger books. One where I think a cat goes missing and they find it. And then another yeah. of her early, earlier um, Harlequin American Romances. Well, um, Jennifer, don't, don't count your chickens before they hatch in the month of December, is what I will say to you saying I don't have a copy of Untamed Heart. You know what else I'm about to do, Sarah, is I, okay, this is another thing, everybody. I ordered 160 copies of Romantic Times from, like, 1991 all the way to, like, to 2008. Sarah's going to cut a couple years. It's her Christmas present. I spoiled it already. And I feel like now I'm going to go back and look through, especially in the 90s. She was, Elda was still writing. Yeah. So now I feel like when we do these 
episodes, I can go back and be like, what was in RT awesome. about these authors? It's going to be Eric amazing. We'll love that. Take good photographs because he's his whole thing now is that he's anytime I get a book. Thanks, Rebecca Romney. But anytime I get one of the books that we've I've been ordering um, after all the Trailblazer episodes, he takes like a high resolution photograph and puts it yes. online. Yes. So make sure you take good photographs of the reviews yeah. and stuff. And we'll do that, too. Amazing. We're doing what we can, Steve and Rebecca. We're out here. <laughs> I, you know what? This was an amazing conversation. I, I, I could have listened to her. She kept apologizing and I was like, no, keep no, going. She can keep going anytime. Anyway. Yeah. Let's all, when, when we go to Lauren's house, we're. Oh, it's happening. We're taking Elda out on the town. I'm clearing a whole day. We're going to start at brunch. Just have it all <laughs> 12 hours of Elda. Exactly. Um, Friend, I love you. I know that you're tired so i'm gonna let you go but um everyone you're listening to faded mates these are the trailblazer episodes um we are so incredibly proud to be able to bring them to you we are so grateful to elda for sharing her story um you can find us at fadedmates.net on Twitter at Faded Mates, on Instagram at Faded Mates Pod. Um, if you are listening to these episodes and enjoying them as much as we hope you are, as much as we're enjoying them, please let us know in all of those places. Tell us who you wish we would talk to. Um, we said we would only do a season of these, but they're going to be forever. I think we're just going to do this forever. Um, and next week, we are, is it caressed by ice? Are caressed, we caressed by, by ice? ice next week? We sure are. All right. So get reading. That's Nalini Singh. Do you have to read the first books in those Psy Changeling series to get it? I mean, I don't think so. I think you'll you'll be okay. There's like a little gloss at the beginning that she gives. It's kind of, I think, a like what's going on. So unless you're a real completist, I feel like you could be, you should probably be able to just dive right into Caressed by Ice. I believe in so. you all. I believe in you. It's going to be Elda believes in us, and I believe in you, too. Very exciting. All right. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week.